look, it's not a rational urge, but it's a very, a very powerful urge. Uh, all right, so I'll start this way. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with uh, Hollywood Top Gun James McKay, ah. who's uh, just whose movie is just come out. It's called The Dressmaker. Uh, we, you are having green tea with almond. No, black tea with almond. Ugh, I forgot to get you the rose one. This uh, is very, very delicious. And I'm having green tea, just straight matcha stirred into some water, which is good. Green tea straight up. So before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about um, some difficult ideas. Do you have particularly difficult ideas? Or do you find that being in LA, you have to be agreeable to everybody? <laughs> Professionally, I think there's something to that. Um, and I think that the, the industry can kind of funnel you into that way of being. Um, particularly in the early years of trying to carve out a career as an actor, you don't want to put up any hurdles to you being employed because there are enough of those anyway. Like you're restricted by your look, by your age, by your gender, your race, your, your profile, all sorts of things. And so often, you know, kind of uh, very close decisions in casting do come down to things that are ultimately out of your control. He's two inches too short. We really want someone with blue eyes. Uh, you know, playing opposite this person that we've already got in the cast and who is what a lot of the funding is drawn to, that combination is not going to work. There's this whole web of factors that you're constantly slotting people into. Mm. And so I think because of that, you want to be agreeable and pleasant and easy to work with. And over time, I think that can slightly dangerously trip into being needy or being too uh, agreeable well, or well, your, whatever you need from me. Your job is, I will be whoever you want me to be, and it's hard not to make that into your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, of course, of course there's an irony, and that is that there are millions of stories of people being cast because they hold their ground or because they, you know, kick the door down or say, no, I'm not going to do it like that, but if you want this. And that sense of not giving in to a preconceived idea of what it's meant to be is incredibly seductive to a casting director. You know, if you go into an audition that you don't actually want, it's like catnip. Mm. And it, it's, it's impossible to fake. Mm. I've often thought if you could bottle that feeling of disinterest, yeah. you'd be set. Because the moment they smell it on you, it's something incredibly attractive. I feel like that in, in um, I managed to shift my perspective when it comes to people in my industry who I really admire because I used to be quite shy around them and not want to approach them because I've, you know, I thought, well, everyone is coming up to them all the time wanting something and, mm. and I think just coming up far enough that people have started to approach me from below, as it were, which is a horrible <laughs> way to think yeah. of the world. Yeah. Um, that I just realised that all you really want to do is talk to people like people. Mm. So as needily or not needily as you would with a normal person. Yeah. Uh, which is, in you know, that's a difficult thing because if you're thinking, how would I be normal? Then you're already, like, you get those, I guess with Hollywood, you get those people who start to talk about themselves in the third person because they're such good actors that they are aware of everything they're doing with their body and their face and their feelings really because mm. feelings become a tool in the trade and Absolutely. if you are conscious and in control to a certain degree you start to feel disassociated i would think mm. and i would um venture the idea that that's not necessarily what being a good actor is to have such total control over everything to do with you ignores the sort of raw edge of what makes really good work really compelling when a scene exists completely between two actors who are completely unguarded mm. and who are completely vulnerable and open to each other in ways that they can't control. That's when I think real magic can happen in a scene. The flip side of that is, of course, any artist or craftsman needs control over their tools and their, their instruments. And one of the really peculiar things about performance, I mean, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this insofar as it relates to comedy, 
is that you are your own instrument. You are playing the violin and you are the violin. Yeah. And that those sorts of, um, I think those sorts of jobs where your, your product, the thing that you're selling, your art is within your own body, um, are particularly tricky sometimes and particularly difficult as opposed to other arts where the, the, the product of the art, I mean, I hate using that word product in relation to art, but the, the material of it, the, the thing you create mm. is outside yourself. It's something that can be hung on the wall of a gallery or um, sold or, or commodified or moved, uh, but it's not actually part of you. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of a, a, something I envy a little rather than the, the necessary idea that you shouldn't take rejection personally yeah. in the industry, but how can you not? Because they are rejecting you. They, that's exactly what they're rejecting. And you're, you have to be taking it personally to be doing good work. You have to think, I can play this role. I can drape the mantle of this character over myself or, you know, it, do like, uh, inflate myself or, or change my personality and character to, to match this. If you're doing that work with integrity and honesty and, and truth, as trite and idealistic as that sounds, it is personal. It has to start with you and your own vulnerability and your own kind of humanity. So if you're constantly opening up that part of yourself in an audition or casting context and receiving no's, then that, that does take its toll and it sort of has to. Yeah, and it should. I mean... I don't know, with comedy, it's, there's a couple of different things at play. One is you, huh, you part, of, part of the idealism of comedy is no one's telling me what to say, which is not true. You're, if you're trying to make a, okay, if you're trying to make a living out of this, if it's not pure art. Yeah, that's uh, the thing. And I'm a big believer that you should be able to make a living out of art, that you should be able to sell it if it's worth something, which people seem to agree it is, then mm. it should be worth money because that's how we value things in our society. Whether we should or not is a different discussion. Mm. Um, but so that you have, people aren't telling you what to say. And then it's just a matter of, okay, how do I say what I want to say in a way that they will hear, mm. that they'll listen to, that they won't tune out, that they won't heckle me, that they'll stay laughing, that there's a certain rate of laughs per minute that I can. So when I write shows, I will think I w there's the thing that I want to say, which is usually just the most appalling, awful thing <laughs> that is in my head at the at the time. You know, with with the lawyer show, everyone's a winner. It was about uh, why the rates of suicide among young lawyers are so high, and why I know that feeling, having been in that job, mm. what it feels like to wake up in the morning and and I was never suicidal, but I w I woke up thinking. I don't want to be alive if being alive is this feeling, right? And that's... Yeah. So I go, okay, how do I make that funny? And the answer is you don't make that funny, but you put enough funny things around it that people can absorb it without getting that kind of defensive... Uh, defensive thing that happens when people hear things that they don't want to hear. Yeah. Which is they either... They dismiss them or they trivialise them or they make the joke. The tension... People can't take more than a certain amount of tension, right? Mm. And and they'll either provide the release by tuning out or by heckling or making something funny. And so I see the balance in my shows, at least, as building and building and building the amount of awfulness that they're willing to... the truth that they're willing to hear before I have to bring it back and make them feel safe again. Mm. And, and if you do it well, and if you have a long enough time, like in an hour show, that's the real privilege. You can't really do that in five minutes. Of course. But in an hour show, you just see how far you can push it and bring them back. And every audience will be a little bit different. And every audience, even though my last show, Savage, was quite written, there's a different level of intensity that I would give to the, to the intense bits mm. because of what I felt like they could take. Mm. Which all sounds quite calculated, but it's all true. Yeah. It's, you, you know, it's... It's real. Yeah, I, th I guess that it's the difference between when you have a friend uh, and you're crying and a friend comes up and says, how are you? 
depends on the friend and depends on the situation as to how you'll say I'm okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think what was so remarkable about that show too was that the release that you gave that audience existed as laughter and tears, really. It was um, both kinds. Because that's, I think, what's fascinating about the response of a group of humans to performance. Whatever the context is, the moment you've got a bunch of people you know, sitting looking at one thing, if they see truth, if they see something that is real and gets through their defences and connects to that sort of human vulnerability that is inside everyone, mm. you will laugh or you will cry. It'll be one of the two things. And depending on how all of those little... I'm sort of picturing you at some large comedic mixing desk. <laughs> minute <laughs> yeah. to minute live, kind of, you know... Yeah, that's what it feels like. Adjusting your levels. It feels three-dimensional in that way, like forward or back and up and down in terms of volume and forward and back in terms of intensity. Like Sounds a bit like Interstellar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What a movie. Uh, it also sounds quite fun and quite terrifying. Yes, because it is true and it is... I mean, with... With Savage, it was even worse in a sense because it wasn't about me mm. and my experience. It it was funneled through my experience, but it was about my mum. Yeah. So when I heard, I got mainly really, really good reviews. And I got one good review that was a three and a half stars. And someone told me that, oh, you got a three and a half stars. And that made me so angry. <laughs> it made me so angry because... And I didn't even, I haven't read any of those reviews. Uh, I just send them to Henry and he'll pull out quotes and send them back to me, the useful right. quotes. Um, <laughs> here's your poster material. Yeah, yeah, here's your poster material. Don't go on the Don't internet look today. at it. Um, but yeah, just the idea of somebody, it's, it's, people could enjoy or not enjoy the experience, but to, to rank my feelings yeah. out of five... Oh, just made like just the thought, just the even the thought of it makes me furious now. Like, yeah. which I should he, probably a signal that I should back off a little for the next show and make it a little bit, <laughs> a little bit less close. Or, or not. Or not. Or not. Or go further, because yeah. that's what that was the power of it. Yeah. It was so personal. You were so, uh, naked throughout. Not literally, of course. And that was the, the lawyer show. Right. The stripping show. <laughs> of course, that review background. I mean, there's got to be one. Um, you were so exposed and so okay in it. I mean, we, we chatted about this after the show, the, mm. the, the, the dangerous territory of comedy is therapy. And when you, you know the difference uh, between someone who's giving you something and someone who's trying to work through something yeah. and thinks this is the arena in which they want to do it. Yeah. And you see that a lot in you know, my gig too, people oh man I don't think you actually want to be an actor yeah I think you need to talk to someone <laughs> or do some community theatre or theatre as therapy or art therapy because all of the, the wonderful thing about working in the arts is that there is undeniably a therapeutic benefit to the work yeah but if you're going into it in a professional context which is treacherous in these industries looking for wholeness yeah. or being like yeah absolution being fixed you oh that's that's thin ice and it could very easily sort of all fall apart yeah that's one of the things i object to and i've written numerous numerous uh, a number of blog posts about it about because i've had that leveled at me because part of what i'm interested in is looking at things that aren't okay mm. and my feelings and thoughts about that and i'm uh either a good enough actor or not well enough established in the industry that people think I'm not doing it on purpose. <laughs> you know, that, that, you know, because Savage is about this wrestling and difficulty and, and, and rawness and unfinished, the unfinished nature of, of human existence and death mm. and the essential unsatisfyingness of the human condition and particularly when it comes to disease and death. If I, if I deliver that in a flip way, I've thought it through, this is what I think about it, so this is what I think about, uh, you know, oh, wait, yeah, blah, 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 blah. that's not what, that's not the, what the show is, but because mm. I'm in there going, 
and that's what I said then and this is what happened then and showing that raw edge people think that's the raw edge I am on Mm. and there's a there's a difference between delivering that honestly and between telling the truth and, and being fucked up yeah you know yeah so I, I, I certainly think there's a difference I could be fooling myself I don't think I am no but I think this is also one of the really interesting things about uh, the arts and kind of artistic endeavours I was at a, a a dinner the other night and um, there were a few people there in the arts in various um, media I'm not quite sure the, what the word is but uh, there was um, another woman there who was uh, a, a teacher and um, it was a really interesting conversation lots of you know different angles on things and at one point um, she asked if all people in the arts are disabled I'm sorry. <laughs> quite, quite. I beg your pardon. Quite maybe? genuinely asked, without a hint of of prejudice or you know she wasn't needling or anything. Just said so. You know, is is there? Or I interpreted the question as being, is uh, the, there a requisite damage? The broken dolls theory of performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. What's wrong with you all? Um, and that I think is kind of an insidious idea that to create good art you must be fucked up somehow or that i mean you hear it a, a lot in 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 acting and actor training the that very very fine line between uh actor and character and the necessity to draw on painful experiences or situations of emotional extremes in which you learn through life the kind of body reality of what those kind of big feelings are like and then can you funnel them artfully into a character in a way that's not indulgent but is still honest and can it ever be honest really i mean and can you do it without feeling it or can you feel it without it impacting you in the way that they say you know if you smile even if you don't feel happy, it will make you feel happier. Yeah. If you're performing with really damaged characters, are they eating away at your kind of psychic integrity? Yeah. Yeah. And you... I mean, we had a teacher at drama school, a wonderful teacher who did a lot of um, emotional release work and a lot of clowning and really kind of difficult stuff. But she always said it's one thing to be able to get yourself into a place, but what marks the professional is being able to get themselves out. Mm. So you're not just left swimming around in despair or trauma or something that's actually going to potentially, as you say, start to eat away at the real person. Yeah, I don't like that broken dolls theory of no. art. And it's I, a, I find it troubling. There's a, I think there's a couple of things at play. Um, one is, and this works and it annoys me so much that it works, um, we're not okay with somebody being powerful and and uh, fully formed I think Mm. it's hard to it's hard as an audience or as humans to open up and be vulnerable if you feel like you're being judged Mm. so there is that kind of the punching up theory where I if I am a wreck if I'm you know a horrible drug dealer who hasn't got my life together and I've got anxiety and all of this stuff if I'm in pieces then I can talk about anything and you don't feel like I'm lecturing you. Hmm. Uh, you know, that... that yeah. And it's sort of a trade-off. I'm going to show you this vulnerability so you listen to me about this other thing, that kind of balance. I have a, a friend who does a sort of a mad professor thing on hmm. stage. He's a very competent man. He's an in, you know does engineering, he used to be a sound engineer, and, and yet he, he plays this kind of naive character on stage so that he can approach really complicated and interesting points as though by accident as though he was just stumbling around he's pulling his hair and he's he's making wild gestures and i'll i'll do that too sometimes if i'm in a country town i'll you know put on like glasses and do that because i know i'm going to come across as prissy and overeducated and so i need to play that mad shambles character so that they don't get offended by your competence. By, yeah, the fact that I'm 
smart. Yeah. So I have to be, I can be smart if I'm also stupid. And you see that with girls all the time. It's not just comedians. Mm. Girls are like, you know, if they talk about their things, oh, but I'm terrible at maths or... Oh, but I don't know. Yeah, oh, but I don't know or whatever it is. Disclaimers. I'm an idiot with boys or they have to... I I don't know if that's with everybody, but I think certainly with performers and particularly with women, that's something that you feel the need to do if if, if you're... If you're not going to alienate people. Mm. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think another part of it is that um, enlightenment myth of the divine inspiration as the artist as divinely inspired rather than than as a craftsperson. Mm. And that's, you know, the idea of the Coleridge sort of, it just comes into your head fully formed. This if blinding you, flash yeah, and there it is. If you just fuck yourself up enough yeah. <laughs> then you'll suddenly be great yeah I don't know Bill Hunter the a wonderful Australian actor now deceased uh, used to talk about how he firmly believed that acting was a craft yeah I, I'm not an artist I'm a craftsman yeah and that's why I work more than all those other bastards out there yeah I turn up and do the job had that attitude of you know it's as much about hitting your marks and being on time and being prepared as it is the rest. And I mean, this is, of course, this, the levels of this depend on the job and the medium. Are you on stage? Are you on film? Is it TV? I, you know, what, what's the most challenging aspect of the job? Is it the kind of vicious emotional reality your character is in all day, every day for three months? Or is it, we have to shoot 15 pages today and it's much more important to get this right in one or two takes each time and maybe not be as far in it. You know, there's all of these other factors that come into it too. But, I mean, it, I think it's a, a question that is difficult to discuss because it connects to, uh, I don't know, humans slash Australians, I'm not sure which it is, unwillingness to kind of, you know, Talk pry about. the doors open and say, actually, I'm not okay. Actually, I'm finding this really difficult. Um, well, also to talk about the things that we don't have great language for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, language actually is quite a blunt instrument. Yeah. You know, the best you can hope for is to sort of corral people with your words words into pointing in the right direction, yeah, more or less. It's in that general <laughs> you know? vicinity. I don't know. Yeah, it's about as, as much about rhythm and tone and, and body language, you know, as mm. it is about the words you use. And... We think of words as having the most meaning, mm. but they're relatively blunt instruments. Yeah. Um, I talked about this at the Copyright Symposium the other day. Uh, Bruce Gardner, who was a lecturer at Sydney yeah, Uni and a brilliant madman, um, they tried to boot him out because he wasn't hitting his KPIs. And then a bunch of students just got together and were like, that is insane and ridiculous. He's the best professor. Yeah. You know, he's, you just was one of those ones where every lecture you went into, you'd come out like just on fire, just ah! changed yeah. viscerally. He said, uh, every word you use is a quotation because every word you use, you've heard in a different context before. The first time you would have heard it would have been in a different context. You've pulled it out of that sentence that you heard it in and that you learned its meaning in that sentence and you've pulled it out and reused it to create a different meaning wow it's a quote this was like a, a a mini quote every word is a mini quote of something that someone said to you once right he's just blown my mind yeah right exactly. yeah like that's 20 right. years later wow um, he he was such a genius and it just made yeah language is actually that just sort of yeah. clumsy patchwork of of things and and every word comes with a cloud of, of meanings that you have and then you hope that they overlap with the meanings that the other people yeah. have. You know, that they're not... God, it's almost like intention is impossible in yeah. what you say. It's going to depend completely on how it slots into that other person's worldview and understanding of those little quotes that you... You know, you can do your best. Well, absolutely, which is why you've got words that are in some languages offensive and some languages not, and yeah. some social situations offensive and some social situations not, because the cloud around each word changes. You know, that's... The, you know, there's Portuguese biscuits called Negroes, 
Like that's mm. not offensive. That's a biscuit. Maybe that's what Abetz was talking about. He was actually just asking for a biscuit. Oh, okay. we owe him an apology. But you know what I mean. That's, totally, yeah. And that's not offensive because I said it as part of a quote denoting what it was. Yeah. And yet there would probably be some people who would hear that, and because of the cloud that word has for them, they mm. would say it is inherently inf- offensive mm. for you to say that word because you know the context in which I might hear it. Yeah, and to them it is. That's an authentic position. That's not being oversensitive. That's, for them, a, a, a fully formed, yeah. historical, immediate personal reality. Yeah, which is a weird thing. And it, I think this is where we get into so much trouble in discourse is trying to deny people's experiences uh when people like will say this is how i feel because of my background yes and because of my experience of this and then you get this like onslaught of usually either hyper conservative or anonymous internet feedback saying no it's not yeah no you're wrong yeah and but i think on the same by the same token your experience can't dictate the world necessarily. No. So it has to be a, a, some sort of balance between the two things where you go, you know, because otherwise you have situations like what genuinely happened at a law school. I think it was Harvard Law School, could be another one, uh, where in teaching law, there was an objection by the students to the use of the term violate, as in violating the law because the word violate was considered to be a trigger word for victims of sexual... Yeah, that's... And then you have a problem. Like, that is a problem on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, of course. And so you go... And it is a spectrum. Yeah. With all of these tiny notches all the way along, and to be, you know, one or two either side. Because the other thing, too, that comes into this is exactly what you said about language. It's a blunt instrument. It's clumsy. Yeah. You can have the best intentions and be trying to say something... Uh, articulate and on point and sensitive and you are a bit tired and trip on a sentence and say something that perhaps genuinely you don't mean oh like the other night in Double Bay at Woolworths I said thanks man to a cashier who is there all the time who may or may not be a man (laughs) like is is somewhere on clearly somewhere on the non-traditional gender spectrum I'm not sure whether whether a man who is uh, does uh, cross-dressing or a, a drag queen or somebody who's transitioning or somebody mm. who has tra- like I can't tell because they're in their Woolies uniform and I don't know and I haven't asked because we don't know each other personally but I see this person regularly I made some mistake in the self-checkout they came and swiped their little thing and I was like thanks man and as I was walking away I was like oh god have okay. I just traumatized <laughs> this person have I just but then I can't you can't be that one. And you can't internalize that because this is this is the this is well you'd never leave the house. You'd just be like shaking in the corner. Yeah, well also fear of constructing a single sentence. I genuinely remember when I adopted man as my term of general reference to people in society mm. because I thought if I'm on the bus and I say thanks man, if they're like an old person who's, you know, polite, they'll hear it as ma'am. <laughs> Like, I just, I remember thinking that when I was a, you know, nerdy kid and being like, that's okay, I'll, I'll use that, it's a neutral term. <laughs> and it's not at all neutral. Mm. Yeah, but I, I don't know. And then on a personal level, I do think that you should be able to call everybody man. I think that everybody, I think we should go, because we've sort of split for a while there, everything was tending towards masculine as gender neutral. Actresses were started to be called actors Mm. waitresses started to be called waiters because it was the job Mm -hmm. and then it sort of started to move in the opposite direction where you have to acknowledge somebody's femininity i think people should be able to be called mister everybody should be mister Mm. you know rather than ms and mrs and miss and that whole like you should just be like mr fraser (laughs) (laughs) that i would prefer that gender neutrality than this kind of complicated web of having to know exactly what somebody is mm. and what they define as, particularly if they are on a moving train to some other identity. Yeah. If we're all just mister, like whether you're a man or a woman or somewhere in between, 
th- that actually solves the problem. It really does. Better and than vastly less potential to inadvertently offend. Yeah. You yeah. Know, Thank you, ma'am. How dare you? Yeah. How it's dare you? Is or you know, which doesn't apply to men. Actually, come to think of it, because they are by and large all misters. Yeah. You get a. Uh... Thanks, mister. Uh, it's doctor. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a different thing as it well. It is a different thing, yeah. Yeah, I think that... I saw an extraordinary piece of theatre last night which uh-huh. uh, dealt very much necessarily with this idea of what language is and what it can be. And it was the headlong production of 1984 mm. that was out for the Melbourne Festival. Mm. I went along having heard really great things and thinking also how can you adapt 1984 into a stage play? And they did. If, wow. if I'm sure this show will be touring for years. If you ever get a chance to see it, you must. It's remarkable. But one of the simultaneously funniest and most depressing parts of the show is a conver- uh, conversation between Winston and one of his co-workers about Newspeak. Huh. And the example that they've incorporated into the script is why do you need a word like bad when you can simply say ungood. Yeah. And isn't ungood even more perfect because it's an exact opposite rather than bad, which has a whole range of other connotations altogether. And it just... Uh, I mean, the, the, the show certainly was, but I need to read the book again because I suspect it is too so blisteringly relevant yeah. to where our social and political discourse is now. I mean, having just come out of these Abbott years of binary sloganism as being the only sort of mechanism for, for debate and discussion, yeah, that felt so painful to hear it expressed in this, you know... I mean, this is a... a it's a truly brilliant production, but it, everything about it and everything about the world of 1984 felt so, so kind of prescient and so just not removed at all there was no capacity to feel well this is i'm just watching a play this isn't you know there was there was no escape from that story and it was a really sort of uncomfortable couple of hours because of it and also the, the there's a reference at one point to you know winston talking to julia about it's not enough for their kind of private act of love to be the rebellion against the party but you need to inspire others to rise up as well and he says if we could just get them to look up from their screens long enough and he's of course talking about the telescreens that are in every room everywhere in um oceania but i was on the tram on the way home and i looked around and yeah everyone's on screens everyone was on a screen i feel so torn about that stuff because i'm naturally a contrarian so when people are like oh social media wringing hands thing I like to think, well, what if actually instead of it being the death of human connection, it is the ultimate expression of the human need to connect. It is Mm. the transcendental, like if you wanted to, you could frame Facebook as you can transcend your human body to connect with other human beings across continents, across the planet Mm. with no limits of space or time. That's a, if you wanted to frame it in that way, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. That's the biggest nation on earth. Yeah. And it's completely non-discriminatory. Yeah, that your friendship is not limited by any any age or creed or I can yeah. talk to people who are of different class. I mean, language is the, the barrier, but you've got Google Translate, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then also the other thing of people wasting time on screens. I think, yes, I know that I have time that gets sucked away by social media. Mm. But on the other hand couple of hundred years ago 90 minutes instead of spending 90 minutes on Facebook I would have been spending those 90 minutes churning butter yeah you know or sewing constantly sewing things up and repairing things and making cloth and repairing cloth and making Mm. food and you know making everything clean because if it wasn't clean you'd all die (laughs) like the 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 amount of time that I have to waste is infinitely larger and also, I think humans have always been pretty good at killing time. Yeah. You know, the, the, the idea that time-wasting is a contemporary phenomenon purely arising from the evils of Facebook is ludicrous. Yeah. 
you know, have your paper under your arm or a book in the bag and you've got 20 minutes to, you know, just because you're choosing to spend that time on social media doesn't make the act of yeah. time wasting inherently more or less valuable or valid. Yeah, ungood. <laughs> well, it's that, it is that thing of like, you don't know what somebody's doing on their screen. Mm. Uh, they, they could be playing a game, they could be reading a novel, they could be... Of these could kind be at of, university. They could be at university. They could be handing. I'm often on. I'm often on a tram writing an SBS article because I get them at very late. And I'm the ring-in guy for, for them as well as having like a regular column. If somebody drops out, I tend to be the one who's like, oh, can we have something in a couple of hours? And mm-hmm. I'll be on the tram, just, you know, typing away, writing my article. You know, I'm. I am at work. Mm. As a sign of the. You know, and you have people, you know, you're getting off the tram, you're finishing off your sentence or you're putting it, sending it an email and someone will be like, harumph, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm, I'm a valuable citizen. I'm doing work right now. Mm. I don't know because I, I do also think that we're losing something. I just don't know if the thing that we're gaining is... is mm. Worth the trade, or even if it matters, it's happening. It is. Well, that's it. It's it's happening. I mean, I think you, when you look at a lot of creative industries, they're all reacting to the fact that traditional distribution models, traditional ways of making money out of creative arts have all changed mm. with the internet, and no one really got out ahead of it except maybe the streaming sites that are now creating content themselves, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Yeah, aggregators and middlemen, which is not great. Yeah, but also, you know, the uh, sort of parallel to, to that shift is this, the shift in what the internet's doing to communication and social media and whether the kind of linking idea means that we skim across the surface of things rather than go um, more profoundly into something, I think, there's something to that. Yeah, There's I think every think piece. I think every think piece should end with "fuck the immigrants," <laughs> just to see if people are reading to the bottom. <laughs> like excellent article, <laughs> ignore the last line. There's yeah. someone who's read to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> but then, um, with social media, there's some um, interesting research that um, my dad told me about. Who, uh, well, to do with. Um, social media and isolation and whether this thing that is purported to be bringing us closer together actually does or mm. whether you know the the growing evidence is more important that it maybe keeps us further apart mm. um that it's easier you, you know even though it can feel like you're connecting with people mm. you are a lot of the time on your own with a screen and that a lot of th- things to do with face-to-face interaction. Well, if we were talking about before, language is a blunt instrument. You're limiting yourself to language. Yeah. And some and emoticons. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and typed language too, which I think is even more difficult because you lose vocal tone, range. Speed of delivery. Speed of delivery. You can't even see while they're typing the no. pace at which they're delivering something. I mean, how, how easy is it to misread the tone of a text? Ugh. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know... Or email, even worse. Oh, yeah. Disastrous. The long, angry email, I think, is the worst thing to happen for human communication ever. Yeah. Because you're reducing an argument to one person sitting in a chair hearing the whole of an indictment against them, which might have been headed off at paragraph two with, like, actually, that didn't happen. Yeah. (laughs) That's not what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? I don't remember Mm. that happening. Are you talking about Terry? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't there that night. Yeah. Uh, But the other side of it too is that um, the the, whether a social media experience is a positive or negative one seems to be to some extent dictated by whether you're scrolling and just looking. Yeah. Just you know, going through your feed, looking at people's pages, sort of standing outside the whole thing, observing. Yeah. Or in it, commenting, yes. liking, engaged in the discussion. And that seems to be a much more positive, um, positivity-inducing yeah, approach experience. to it. Yeah, rather than being sort of at the mercy of highly curated images yeah. of people's lives, which are invariably, you know, if you're just kind of thinking, well, God, everyone's having such a good time but me. 
yeah curated both by them and then by the feed the nature of the feed and whatever algorithms are happening to expose you to one thing or another yeah and to assume that because you like one thing you'll like more things like that yeah it's a very shallow perception of human nature totally and i think a really like kind of terrifying idea is that I mean, how many people are on Facebook? I like Molière and Vin Diesel. Yeah. Like, you know? And that's okay. And that's okay. That those kind of algorithms might start to shape... Who you are. Yeah, rather than rather than them being a response to the way people tend to like things that then it'll flip. Oh, I have another Bruce Gardner quote that's Great. for that. He said when he was reading your essays, beware the power of propinquity. As in, don't just... When you're doing research, don't just look in the footnotes of the thing you're reading for the next thing you should read. Because, I mean, he said this because he was a wanker and also a genius. I will recognise that loop of links. Like, I'll recognise all the footnotes. I'll read your footnotes first and I'll see that you've just read in a circle. Fire out. Um, So, but that was just like, again, yeah, don't just read the thing that's referenced in the thing you're reading. Don't mm. just click the link from the link you're reading. Yeah. Go out there. Read Stormfront. Read the bloody men's rights activists forums. Just mm. engage with ideas that you don't like. Yeah. In an open mind. Don't just hate read them. Like genuinely go, why, why does this person feel that way? Is it a lack of information? Is it a genuine opinion on which reasonable minds can differ? Can mm. we agree to disagree or is are your views genuinely a threat to me? Yeah. Because sometimes they are. If you don't think I'm a person, we have an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it happens to be. Yeah. But then you, you need to actually figure it out. And so I've wondered about this before when Facebook ranting about something and then, you know, it's really satisfying and you hit post and you get likes mm. and you think, wow, a whole bunch of people that I already know and probably share a very similar general broad spectrum outlook on things. Yeah. I've just said something that they're probably all thinking too. So what actually is the impact of that statement? And also, have have I just released some tension about an issue that I should have actually worked towards fixing? Wow, that's... Yeah. Should I have stayed angry for another week and actually done something? And called a member of parliament or started a petition or done something other than like, oh yeah, that was good. Gone out and given some money to a homeless person, gone out to, you know, teach a refugee kid how to speak English. Like any Mm. of those things that you can do, pro bono work as a lawyer or or whatever it is, it's easy to feel like you've done something Mm. because you've done something. Yeah. Uh, And I, I think that's also... You know, and then the char- it's similar to giving ch- money to a charity on the street, which I don't agree with. I don't think mm. you should give money to charities on the street because most charities don't do a lot of what they say they do. Mm. It's a huge amount of money. In, I mean, the worst offender, and this is going to probably be slightly contentious. Good. Um, Let's go there. Charity fund runs for a charity. So when somebody organises an event in the name of a charity, you've got the event administration mm-hmm. and then you've got the charity administration and then you've got the people doing the work that the charity pays them to do. There's three layers between your money and the people you want to help. Mm. You know what I mean? Like a lot of a lot of the evidence is, is showing that the, your best bet is just to give a microloan somewhere. <laughs> you know, yeah. a microloan to a woman in Africa towards an educational outcome Mm. or to the Bill Gates Foundation because they actually do their research about what needs to be done and what's your best dollar spend yeah if you that seems to be the best way to spend your money Mm. but like most people don't haven't even started to think about that Mm. well and the I'd like to I'd like to stay on this for a second the the charity the the street charity vendors slash hawkers, which is essentially what it is. Yeah, they get paid whatever it is, between 16 and 25 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's hard work. Yeah. All day. Yeah. Objectively, just hitting people up. Yeah. And Being all rejected. The, all the, the kind of 
tricks now, the, the handshake, that, oh, I just want to say g'day. It's a lovely but, skirt. Yeah, you know, oh, I'm only talking to people wearing pink pattern skirts today. Lucky you. Yeah. To try and sort of tap into that idea of, oh, yeah, oh yeah, how yeah. nice. Something. Con artists. Kind of. Mm. And I have a... I'm really conflicted about it because on the one hand, sure, if you're... I just kind of can't believe that any situation in which someone is raising money for a charity can be bad. Like, base level, that's a good thing, surely, if that's causing any amount of money to go to a charity. But as you've just pointed out, all of these layers of bureaucracy, it's a much more complicated thing than a simple channel of funds going to a needy... Whale somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, You're better off just giving 50 bucks to a whale. Yeah, just... <laughs> Okay, and I think we're getting somewhere now. <laughs> Everybody just needs to find their whale. Mm. But I often, frequently, find myself really resenting those people. Mm. Because there's this... I've had it a few times, actually more in the States than here, but where you'll receive an approach, and I'll say, sorry, not today, but good luck to you. Yeah. And walking away, you'll get... Thanks a lot. Oh, real nice, man. Some kind of little barb mm. about the fact that you didn't stop to hear the pitch or that you didn't give money. And that really irks me, probably more than it should. But that idea of... Well, because it's a reflection on your character from incomplete information. Yeah. About part of your character that you care about. You think you're a generous person and that you're an open-hearted and open-minded person, but you're on your way to somewhere and you have your charities and you don't give money to people on the street because it's a fucked way to get money to whatever cause you believe in. Mm. So I care more about charity than you. Fuck you, yeah. basically. And also on a kind of base human connection level... Don't make me look bad. Well, yeah, but also if you've got the right to bail me up in the street when I'm on my way to somewhere or doing something or, or just not in the mood to be stopped on the street, surely I have an equal and opposite right to say, no, thank no, you, thank sir. You. Yeah. I will continue on my way yeah. without receiving, however minor, uh, abuse. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I agree. And... So... Kill so, all the charity so workers. those guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or you just... I don't know. It would be quite a fun sketch to do to go out on the street and approach those guys and be like, have you thought about what you're doing? Mm. <laughs> like, But then it's also a job, I guess. And, you know, if you're a traveller and you're here for a certain amount of time and need a way to make some money for the next stage of your adventures, well, mm. gig's a gig. A gig's a gig, but at the same time, as you say, you don't have a right to be mean to people. That's it. That's the difference. And it went the other way. I was in Wellington recently visiting my brother and uh, <laughs> there was one of those guys on the street and uh, as we walked past, he said, hey bro. And I said, oh, no, sorry. We're actually on our way to get lunch. But I mean, maybe another time. But uh, Good luck. Hope it goes well today. And he just sort of looked at me and was like, just said hi, man. <laughs> and then I felt like a real no, idiot. No, but that's, a pa that, that's him being passive-aggressive, I would say. Well, he, he he's seemed... dressed as a charity mugger. He's not just saying hi. yeah. But then I thought, wow, maybe I've gone too far with this whole thing. Of being... You just need a pamphlet, the inside yeah, pocket, yeah. to say, good day to you, sir. Yeah, have you, heard about, have you heard about God? Yeah. <laughs> have you met this whale? He's in great need. <laughs> Sorry, I gave all my change to a whale. <laughs> He's uh, killing himself with the krill right now. <laughs> so much krill. Uh, all right, is there anything that you think that you think is a really unpopular idea? Or has being an actor wiped all of those from you? <laughs> <laughs> um, a really unpopular idea. Look, there's, there's an idea that I'm... It's not so much an idea as a position that I'm really confused about Ooh, why good. it seems unpopular, at least according to where we are mm -hmm. politically and economically at the moment. And... It's got to do with all the reasons that 
governments and politicians the world over give for not being able to do things that seem totally obvious we should be doing. Yeah, for example? For example, we want to put this huge mine here. Mm. And a whole bunch of people say, no, that's really, that's a problem because, uh, you know, because of environment and habitat and water use here and all of these, you know, let's, let's probably not be able to like set water on fire coming out of the taps, yep. like all that kind of stuff where you think, surely this just isn't a good idea. And you get the kind of grave, earnest, very stern explanation of, but it'll create jobs and this is very important for our economy and this is... Uh, no, well, could, we couldn't possibly consider all of those factors because of all of these factors. Surely the story of people is that most of the time, historically, given any set of circumstances, we can actually do anything. That's what we're best at, putting heads together and solving a problem. So I am just completely, and maybe... Correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I'm just being completely idealistic, but with overwhelming scientific evidence that climate change is anthropomorphic, happening possibly beyond a very, very dangerous tipping point already, surely when we should be doing absolutely everything we can mm -hmm. to be unraveling or undoing to any extent that process, why? Are we still investing huge sums of money in fossil fuel reliant projects that are just going to accelerate the process, just make it worse, and sort of feeling like we should be very proud of having done so? Why, like, why not just scrap it all and try and create jobs around renewables? Solar energy. We're in a country that is predominantly desert. I think because of the binary thing. Right, because actually the solution is coal is the best for some stuff, so we should keep doing like you can't make steel without coal. True. So do the steel with the coal, and then the other things with the other things. And mm. but there's nobody who's making that argument. There's nobody who's making that argument. People are saying stick with what we got, or scrap everything, go new. Mm. And 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 yeah, you're right. It's a ridiculous thing, but we hate. I think the answer is that we don't like change. Yeah. Like. Yeah. That's why all new music is bad. <laughs> like... Oh, it's so depressing, isn't it? It's the one thing that is a constant, is that things will consistently change all the time in predictable and unpredictable ways, and we're so bad at it. Yeah. We're so bad at it. At whatever scale it's on, we resist it and get yeah. frightened that it'll threaten something integral to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, how passionately do you feel that the Backstreet Boys are better than Bieber? <laughs> I... Can't actually really claim to have much of an opinion on that specific <laughs> one, I, but maybe I should. Maybe that's a personal failing. Maybe I'm just uninformed. Yeah, maybe it's when it comes to got your wrong, your priorities wrong. You're all about charity and not a, enough about <laughs> Teen Wang. Is he a teenager still? I don't know. I'm not sure, but I assume you heard his recent comments on Christianity. No, what did he say? Well, this is this is Bieber three. Uh, we had, you know. Christian, young, Yeah, like Canadian, young teen yeah. idol, then like being the bad boy, and now he's sort of come through all that, and yeah. just, just, he's a Christian. But, you know, In a cool Christians way. rub a lot of people up the wrong way. I'm not going to go to church to be a Christian. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Hey, if I go to Taco Bell, that doesn't make me a taco. Go Unquote. Uh, the Bieber taco model of Christianity. <laughs> True story. It doesn't even make enough sense to deconstruct. Well, and he's also right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just he's because right, you go but to he's taco also, Bell, yeah. It, it, indeed, it, it does not make It's a completely taco. consistent, logical position. Yep, and you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. It all so, makes... It's not often you get someone who is absolutely right on both counts and is simultaneously so wildly missed the point. Just like such an idiot. Yeah. Wow. You don't... I've almost got more respect for you him. You also now. don't go to Taco Bell to pretend to be a taco. <laughs> <laughs> or to like wrestle with your taco feelings. Mm. I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I, it's, I've been thinking about that a lot the past few weeks actually. <laughs> sort of annoying. Too much. So, yeah, it's far too, too much. Too much. But do you think, just going back to the kind of, you know, the, 
the part where we as humans do things that seem wildly bad for our future mm. and do them thinking it's a it's a good thing to do. I mean, that's double think, surely, just to, to you know, oh, yeah. bring it back to, to 1984, which has been rattling through my head pretty consistently since I saw it. But also, do you think the binary thing comes out of a feeling that maybe, you know, democracy is to an extent illusory, that governments will, to some extent, always be representing business interests, and how can a community possibly fight that? Well, it's a fasc- so you go as far as possible to the other extreme? I don't know. It's a fascinating thing because we are now equipped with more tools than we've ever had before to mm. direct democracy, which we kind of don't want. Like, di- direct democracy is played out in BuzzFeed clicks. Mm. You know, direct democracy is Kardashian asses, But... We have the tools, thank you. You know what I mean. (laughs) You end up ankle deep in puppy pictures and that's what direct democracy could be. Mm. On the other hand, I don't really see a problem in having, for example, a discretionary amount of your tax uh, going to whatever area of the economy you see fit. Not all of it, because most people don't think of everything. Yeah. You know, you're not. If you're not disabled, you're not going to think. Oh, disability services, mm. for example. Oh, Aboriginal welfare is important to me. But say, five mm. percent of your tax every year, you get to click where it goes to. Yeah. We have the capacity to do that. Technologically speaking, yeah. the admin wouldn't be that high. You can do it on a fucking whatever they called. App. Yeah, really? survey monkey survey thing. Whatever they're called. You're the one with the monkey. Mm-hmm. Never mind. <laughs> But you could do that. There's nothing mm. stopping us doing more of that in our democratic systems. Yeah. And it doesn't need to... I mean, I, I think the, the uh, sort of end point of that idea is a little troubling, and it's what you see in kind of American philanthropic culture a lot of the time, which is I will pay no tax, mm. but I will give a lot of money because I will decide where my money goes and what's, you know, that's a, an inherent freedom to be able to do that. Mm. And that's, you know... Dumb. Well, then you've got, you know, I mean, it's that big government, small government idea, which is just a bit peculiar. Obviously, you know, that's that's not the way to go. But yeah, exactly. Sort of the, the, the collectivist model of this is what I, this is what I care about. Yeah. Sure, 5%, you know, and that may, dealing with smaller amounts in that way may start to reduce this binary thing. I think that's what... A lot of the, a lot of discourse problems come down to is that people are terrified of sitting in the grey, yeah, and getting into the murky territory and going, I don't know, or I've changed my mind because then it's like flip flopper, you've changed your mind, how dare you? It's like, well, no, I'm an adult and I receive new information, and I mean, the the extent to which that is a, a, a kind of. I was born, yeah, I sprang fully formed from the head of my father and I've never changed my mind. How is that a good thing? Exactly, exactly. That just makes you a mollusk. Yeah, but the idea of flip-flopping is, you know, these attack ads based on flip-flop. I'm all for flip-floppers as long as it's based on information and a rational decision. If we're not flip-flopping, especially at a moment like now, which I think is really fucking interesting time to be alive where the technological growth curve is going vertical and everything's in this crazy moment of change maybe everyone feels like this all the time but i i feel like if if you know technological development and scientific development is an exponential curve then Mm. we're really at a, a steep moment and it's kind of fascinating if we don't have people who are leading us by grappling with the difficult stuff and trying to make sense of the the complicated areas, then we're kind of being torn in two directions at the same time towards infinite complexity in terms of what we're capable of on the one hand and an attempt to remove all complexity in how we talk about those things. Yeah. Which is kind of terrifying. Yeah. That's a good, complicated idea to end on. I'm happy with us just leaving it at absolute, like, 
just terror. Absolute terror. Balanced, balanced on the fine razor edge between terror and hope. <laughs> sure, I think that's where we all are all the time, really. Where can people find you online, James McKay? Uh, Twitter at JW McKay. Instagram mm-hmm. at James W McKay. M-A-C-K-A-Y. And I'm on Facebook. And on Facebook. And go see all of the movies that he is in, starting with The Dressmaker. Out this week. Hey.